Guten Tag, friends. <laughs> Guten Tag. <laughs> we're we're uh, we're really taking it to the classics today, aren't we, Jen? We absolutely are. Yes, we're 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 veering off into a very Valkyrie direction today here on Dreading the Boards, Lillian Fussell. Amazing, Jen Ponton. Who do we have with us as our guest on stage today? Today we have Tracy Cox. Opera singer Tracy Cox. Hi, 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 hi. So happy to be with you. Thank you you for joining us. Tracy is uh, viral online at Sparkle Jams. Um, She is. Uh, she she's closest to Lillian and I because she's very very vocal um, and active in fat politics. Uh, she's a tremendous artist activist. Um, as far as I know, she invented the hashtag Fat Vanity, which is nice. an absolute favorite of mine. <laughs> um, but also, then after that, I learned that she was an opera singer. Tracy has been an award and prize winning opera, operatic soprano, um, has performed all over the world, Budapest, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, LA, Moscow, Chicago, um, New Brunswick, Canada, DC, and in New York. Um, Tracy has also been a vocal voice, again, for Fat Politics, was interviewed by the New York Times on Fat Politics and Restaurant Accessibility. Um, she is a frequent speaker and performer on the topic of body justice in performing arts. She sung with opera companies all over the U.S. And um, she is originating the role of Helen in the new operatic adaptation of Neil Labute's Fat Pig. <laughs> welcome, welcome, Tracy. Thank you. Thank Best you so news much. to come into fat media since we first found out that Fat Pig was a play. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. It's so exciting because, I mean, the play was uh, such a big deal uh, when it uh, arrived, obviously. And um, there uh, are, obviously, I'm biased as an opera singer. Uh, I love the kind of expressive capability of the genre of opera. So uh, it's just so exciting to see um, how it will uh, be new in this iteration. And there's also the librettist, um, Miriam Gordon Stewart, um, builds this as a kind of feminist reimagining of the play. So there is some differences in the libretto from the play. Nice. Bless. I'm sure that feels very affirming to your heart and soul. Yeah. Because <laughs> we all have yeah. opinions on that initial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the female characters to have agency uh, and something to say uh, is, is great. <laughs> Gasp. Miraculous. <laughs> so you came to opera by way of what in particular? Were you a musical theater person? Were you were you just a singer and you were like, this is it, this is my trajectory? Did you come from stand-up? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my gosh, imagine. Um, I, um, you know the classic stand-up to opera pipeline. Yeah, that pipeline, right. yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> I was definitely a musical theater person. I was like obsessed with golden age musical theater as a kid. Uh, so without knowing mm-hmm. it, uh, the the kind of 
beginnings of the American musical theater tradition, which were about uh, beautiful melodic lines without amplification cutting over a full orchestra. And um, so really without knowing it, I was falling in love with the bel canto operatic tradition uh, via the kind of American mm. lens for that. Um, and then I saw my first opera when I was 16 at the Met. Um, my mom took me to see Otello. And um, it was just a light bulb moment. It was like I had no idea of uh, what would be involved uh, to becoming an opera singer, but I just knew I could do it. I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. Cool. Okay. Settled. <laughs> yes. <laughs> at the Met, was that a real, like, epic full circle moment when you did your first performance there? Yeah, it really was. Um, when uh, the Met has every year, they have uh, a nationwide competition um, for, for young emerging singers. So that was my first time stepping onto the stage to sing with the orchestra. Uh, was in the finals of that competition. And um, it was about about 10 years between that first seeing that and, and stepping onto the stage. Um, and yeah, magical. I mean, there's no place like the Met, you know, it's like 3,000 seats, it's enormous, the sets are huge, um, and it's just so special. It's just a really special place. So yeah, that was that was a neat moment. Uh, I I have a quick question that doesn't necessarily involve your origin story but i i heard recently that it's very common in the opera world to have to pay to audition is that true it is so incredibly true uh there are so many uh practices in the opera industry that that uh the my theater friends really can't even wrap their brains around um yeah it's very commonplace uh, for you to um, pay for the for the youngest artists who go through every opera company has a a young artist program which is essentially an apprenticeship uh, when you're first beginning your career Um, and so for those types of auditions you're paying an application fee you're paying a fee to the pianist when you get there um, and um, yeah it's it can be very bizarre and and in the for the later artists for the professional um career artists you are uh the the company's renting the room a tiny little room in new york and you're showing up and you're writing a check to their pianist rather than um them paying for that um Mm. yeah so many of the costs of just getting in the door are put onto the artist's shoulders uh, rather than the company. That's wild. So she are there is. are there um, like a cadre of accompanists who only do opera stuff? Like that sounds like if you're getting all, you're basically like getting a, a tip from everybody. Yeah. And, and like, is that more sought after? Yeah. And not to undermine um, their value and skill set because uh, that's called no, a repetiteur. No, like uh, the pianist who who plays uh, rehearsals for an opera production, they I mean what they're having to do is condense an orchestra into what they're playing, um, and it's incredibly <laughs> difficult. Okay, um, that's fair. That's very different from like <laughs> bedoinking a little right, Gershwin. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so when a singer walks in and they have their you know book, generally we present five arias in an audition that they can choose from. Um, uh, wow. but yeah, just being a pianist 
uh, with the skill set to be able to play any aria that's put in front of you, that's a valuable skill set. But that doesn't mean uh, companies shouldn't be <laughs> paying for, uh, for the interviews with the singers, you know. Right, right. Wild. Yeah, yeah it's wild. <laughs> are opera singers also protected by a union? We are you sure guys technically are. part of Equity? Or? No, we okay, are uh, AGMA, the American Guild for Musical Artists. Um, but the trick is for us is that encompasses, um, dancers, chorus, etc. So soloists are a minority within the union. So often we are being advocated for last. Um, and this is actually, mm. I actually co-founded, uh, a new think tank for opera singers that launched in June. That's called Sing Tank. And what we're trying to do is, um, advocate for singers in a way that our union doesn't, uh, meaning we're not, you know, advocating for like a new legal standard the way a union is, but we are uh, trying to make policy recommendations uh, to be adopted throughout the industry because singers know best what needs to be changed in the industry. And so we're trying to figure out pathways for us to be empowered in a different way. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so great. So I feel like I feel like uh, it's our first day of kindergarten here because right. like we sort of know the standard things that can go wrong with musical theater, right? But like when or like the the legendary stories of of productions of musicals that have like gone totally off the rails, right? Chitty chitty bang bang just stops in the middle of the audience, and then what do you do? Right. What are those experiences and legends, etc., in opera, like? What goes wrong and how? Um, I, it seems I, to I me <laughs> there's so many more moving parts. Like there's, Ooh. it seems like the amount of just variables alone <laughs> would mean that the combinations of permutations of flying shit could be all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're so right. I love being asked this question because I, you know, uh, often I'm thinking about how. Um, I mean, just with any performing artist, the, the, the audience, even if they love it, really don't have a lot of insight into how much is going on to make it happen. Um, and with opera... Sing pretty, so good. <laughs> so, so fun, you don't have to work for a living. You just get to do what you love. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, with us, I mean, first of all, like, let's take the Met, for instance. The conductor, if you're at the very lip of the stage, the conductor is still 50 feet away from you. Um, So just in terms of keeping, making sure you're in the center of the beat is, like, the first challenge, right? Um, Mm. And then secondly, I'd say probably at least 75% of opera productions are on a dramatically raked stage, meaning that incline, uh, (laughs) meaning you don't really have center of balance super locked in. Um, uh, uh, So you add add into that if you're doing a period piece and you have like a hem that is uh, problematic in like a ballroom skirt kind of way. Like there's just... There's a lot involved in making sure you stay upright and you sing your part, you know. <laughs> There's a lot going on, for sure. <laughs> I saw um, I saw 
I don't know how you guys refer to it, like whomever's design of La Boheme mm. a couple years ago at the Met. Mm-hmm. Probably and Zeffirelli. And the stage is like a fucking sleaze. It's a, it is a ski slope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, a friend of mine in the chorus also, because that, that Zeffirelli production at the Met of Boheme, which is iconic, which is yes. the, their, their best-selling opera of all time. They, it's every single season it's scheduled because people – Want to come here, Puccini, and uh, see a beautiful love story with gorgeous tunes? Like, who can blame them, right? But this, right. this production, it's got the snow, right? There's snow happening. Uh, there's a rake. There's, there's all kinds of stuff like that. And then uh, uh, w- one of my friends in the chorus was telling me recently when they, uh, s- the season began again um, is her costumes which have been in rotation since the beginning. So this is a 40-year-old costume that is a wool dress, a wool cape, a wool bonnet for the snow, right? And she's under the lights. Like, I would probably die. Like, it's like... (laughs) So cozy. (laughs) Cozy. There you go. (laughs) It snows on stage, you know. Right? Yeah. What's the snow? I'm guessing the snow is made out of some kind of plastic. It's not actual like wet. I don't snow, know what it? they actually use. Sometimes they use like sudsy soapy things, and sometimes they use yeah, like a lightweight plastic. Jesus, oh, God, that would be a slip and slide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fucking Lapa, I'm at the laundromat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I remember when I saw it. Um, when I when I saw it, my husband said to me, "You know, she dies at the end." I'm like, "Yeah, I know. I've seen Rent. Spoiler. Like, I know what happened." <laughs> and she like sings the last note, and she's like, "I die, curtain down." And I was like, "What the fuck was that?" And he was like, "I told you, she dies at the end." And I was like, "No, no, 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 no. That is not what that sentence means." <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's a that's a big. Uh, issue in opera like uh you kind of know generally you know what's gonna happen (laughs) but it still manages you know somebody's dying and singing that's that's the classic opera moment (laughs) so what is the strangest thing that has happened to you on stage in in a performance or or covering like a crazy scenario where you had to cover or like what what happens if you have to vamp? I don't know. Like you can take Lillian and I through our paces because this is so. It should be more familiar because it's it's just like you know, it's the sister art to musical theater, but there but it's so niche. Totally, um, yeah. You know what I'm thinking because there's so many like we all have all, all of these stories because we're in our most professional selves. What we're best at is just dealing with whatever nonsense shenanigans has occurred uh, and uh, <laughs> not letting anybody uh, on to what's happening. Um, I think one of my, one of my more uh, ridiculous experience, experiences um, probably was this show that I did that it was a it was a baroque opera like never performed it was something they dug out of the basement of s- some conservatory um and um we had a it was essentially a pop up so we um were hosted by a beautiful library 
and the production had to be loaded in performed and then broken down and loaded out every single day and night um <laughs> which which created doing two perform I mean uh, no there, there were there were three performances and I think it was two or three weeks of that um okay. like a weekend um uh and there wasn't access to a, a bathroom or dressing rooms for us so we were going to the coffee shop across the street to use the restroom there were tents for us for costume changes um and to add all that we had a particular cast member who had an anger uh issue and so um there was one night where he was from out of town and and there were lots it was densely populated city hard to find parking <laughs> course the parking wasn't covered by the company he got like oh no five or six parking tickets in a week so like the final parking ticket happened when we had a two-show day so it happened he discovered it in between the shows so on the on the final show his rage manifested by taking a prop which was a, a like a laser printer on the stage and like he threw it down the stairs like the off the off stage like exit it shattered the glass shattered everywhere and so cut to the oh, stage manager shit. like on her knees in the dark like trying to oh, like clean up the no. glass and everybody tiptoeing through oh <laughs> it was insane and but of course like when oh, he no. threw it the audience is like oh ha ha this character is mad you know uh where like but all the rest of us are like oh, oh okay entrance over glass neato um oh, and that was that I was can... cherry on that show. oh my god i can imagine myself being like i didn't Maybe that was like a sugar glass panel. Like, how did they get that into the? Maybe yeah. was it just yeah, a crash box off stage? That was very realistic. Yeah, wow. that was a real oh, ass printer. Fucking awful. That's <laughs> tumbled down the stairs. Wow. <laughs> can you imagine if it was? I'm presuming it's a driving city, but can you imagine if it was like New York and you all had to get on the same train back together or oh. like go in the same 15 passenger van? Oh my god! Yeah, let me tell you, <laughs> like, he didn't. He didn't attend the cast party. <laughs> He was out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. That's impressive. I've seen people throw a lot of things, but not an entire, like, uh, office appliance like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, just this, just the strength. The I think the adrenaline in that moment carried him through that, that toss. <laughs> you know? Just hulked out. <laughs> yeah. Listen, wow. I'm not going to... Jen, you say poor library. This place did not give them a bathroom. <laughs> Oh. I have, oh, I have little. It. I don't have a lot of sympathy for places that don't give you a bathroom. <laughs> yeah, we like obviously there's a lot, like bathrooms in that library. We couldn't access it for some reason because it. I I don't remember, but yeah, it was just the worst possible conditions. And we all try to be like troopers, like nobody's expecting their private like dressing room with a chaise lounge, you know. But like, yeah, bathroom sure. would be amazing. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, you no. You deserve a chaise lounge. Thank for you. Sure. Like if you were a piece of furniture, Tracy, obviously you'd be a chaise lounge. Oh my gosh. Yeah, flattered. I see that. Hot pink velvet chaise lounge. <laughs> Love. So accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um 
So even though we do kind of focus on like disasters and foibles and everything, and I'm sure we definitely want to hear about some memorable auditions when it comes, I mean, for opera or musical theater, like how late into your life did you make a, a really clear transition where you were like, no, I'm only really focusing on this. How long was like typical theater in your, in your life? Um, it was really only, um, like up through, uh, through high school, uh, where I really wanted to be a serious actor, uh, uh, because <laughs> I thought that I wasn't a good enough musician, um, to, to be an opera singer. Um, because, um, I mean, I've always had a natural ear and could pick things up really quickly, but I didn't play an instrument and it seemed very intimidating to me. And I thought, well, I'm a great actor. That's what I'm going to do. Like, forget the singing part. Um, and then I saw that opera and was like, well, forget it. This is the new pathway. Um, and then I just started applying to schools, um, and, um, ended up going to UCLA on a full ride, which like definitely like sent, sent me on that pathway. Like I couldn't have really done it otherwise. Um, but I mean, music theory, music theory at UCLA was rough for a freshman, Tracy Cox. Oh yeah. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, I made it through, but I'm really glad that I kind of started in a place of really respecting and admiring you know straight theater uh because a lot of people have kind of funny opinions about opera in terms of thinking it's not actually a theatrical experience like it's just like a park and bark situation you know um Uh. and um it's really not especially today there's just i'm using that (laughs) um so much involved all we want to do is tell a you know the the human experience just like any other performing art um, and we want to use all the different facets of that that we have access to. And yeah. the feelings are so big. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yes. The feelings are so big. You have to be a nuanced, skilled performer, whether you're singing your emotional experience or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's a, it's this, it's, I mean, uh, in my opinion, um, not dissimilar to, to uh to Shakespeare a little bit where you have to still you have to still tell the story to people who might not understand everything that you're saying or anything that you're saying so like exactly yeah when so when done well hooray when done poorly I can see how you might walk away being like well (laughs) I feel like someone just screamed at me for a couple hours yeah I'll be honest I did not do very well with Rigoletto (laughs) oh uh about it I hate that opera uh with a burning passion like if i never see that again it's like too soon for me you know (laughs) um but it is i say this about opera all the time in that it is it deals only in extremes so um (laughs) um good opera is like life-changing the greatest thing you'll ever see you'll never forget it mediocre opera is garbage like in a dumpster on fire hard to endure you know so um (laughs) if your first experience is is just kind of mediocre all right you're not going to go back but if it's the other one you're like julia roberts in pretty woman you're like okay i'm hooked like this is it for me you know so i am i'm so excited to learn everything that you want to tell us about fat pig because first of all um i wasn't i was unaware that they were adapting 
contemporary stories into opera until whatever they did in 2020 or 2019 with Porgy and Bess. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, oh, this is very exciting. Oh, how would this, um, how would this differentiate from the musical? But also, like, how has this experience been taking Neil LeBute, taking someone who is incredibly skilled with dialogue and and turning this very um, very nuanced, very political um, story into something that is exclusively music? Yeah. Um, I love that question. And, and Porgy and Bess, by the way, um, it is, it's one thing. It's, it was considered the first American opera. So it's performed oh. by musical theater companies, but it is considered to be an opera. And so uh, when the Met did it last season, they did it again just now this season as well. Uh, it was the first time they, mm-hmm. I think they had done it since its debut. It had been decades um, uh, because it kind of just went out of favor. Um, but yeah, that the, the, the piece itself is, is like our American tradition of opera. Um, but, uh, it is, what's interesting about our industry is that it's one of the most conservative, um, in the performing arts It's one of the most conservative genres in terms of uh, we have this canon, we have this huge repertoire, uh, uh, you know, that spans centuries. And um, companies are very attached to performing the canon. So um, things that may be problematic, things that may be exotici- mm. exoticizing the Orient, you know, like stuff like that. Of course. is still very much in the canon. And opera companies program that stuff because it sells tickets because people are familiar with it. Like, Oh, I have heard of that. I'll go see that. Right. Right. Um, and both in uh, classical symphonic work and in opera, um, uh, just in terms of keeping the doors open, they're much inclined to program what is already known in the field. So the big grand fight has been to, uh, get these modern stories that are rel- like, that are really, really a part of the zeitgeist today, right? Um, uh, and so when they happen, the interesting thing, when they happen, like this opera that just opened the season at the Met, Fire Shut Up In My Bones, um, was a huge success um, uh, uh, because it's really telling a modern, relatable story. Um, and, uh, again, so with fat pig, um, there's so many reasons why it is really important and really exciting for our field. Uh, because, well, first of all, there's never ever in the canon been an opera where there was explicitly a fat woman being cast as a romantic lead. Um, so that's like first time ever <laughs> in our field, right? right? Which is wild because that's some tea. so many people generally have that stereotypical idea of an opera singer who's fat, right? They see the woman with the horns and they're like, that's what opera is. Right. Right. Which is mm-hmm. related to the... We have idioms about it. Right. Yes. Yeah. And that exists for a reason because over the history of the art form, there have been many 
excellent fat singers. Uh, and there's a lot about the like physiology we could talk about why that is true. Uh, but these days, in the last 30 years, um, there uh, has been this shift towards cinematic casting, let's put it that way. Um, mm. And um, fat people have been more and more uh, shut out and kept off of the stage. Um, so uh, anyways, the fact that we're telling the, the experience of one fat person on a stage where she is being uplifted as worthy of desire and being shown in scenes of intimacy, uh, that's like a real... Thing, hello, like 2021. Um, and in my opinion, that's the way to keep this art form alive. That's how you get people excited to actually come to this thing. They don't really know a ton about the genre or the art form, but they're excited about the story. And um, mm -hmm. opera tells stories so well in such a specific way. It brings together all these art forms, you know, all of these art forms. It's this huge thing. Um, and, um, yeah, sorry. I'm like really excited by that question. So, no, this is uh, so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it's very exciting. Fat Pig is really so exciting. So what was your audition process like? And how long did you sit on this? Because I mean, I feel like, I feel like the reveal of it was extraordinarily exciting to everybody who knows you almost certainly personally and definitely virtually like this is absolutely the opportunity for you to get to merge these two identities that are not disparate at all, but in in such a bodacious way. Yeah, I, I love the way you put that. I was like merging those two kind of personas of myself because for the longest time, especially re reverting back to what I said about this, this art form being conservative, we all from our management, from our mentors, we all get this advice to kind of homogenize ourselves. Don't be offensive. Uh, wear mm -hmm. your Spanx, wear your jewel tone wrap dress, sing as well as you oh, can, Lord. that's it, you know? Nobody's encouraged to really share who they are as an artist, which I think is a huge tragedy and, and a, a bad idea in general. Um, because we're all looking for, for what makes you what makes you as an artist, right? Uh, we should be looking for that in casting. Um, um, uh, but really what happened, I didn't audition. Um, Miriam, the librettist and director, That's what's up. Like, uh, had, was looking to cast Helen and got a ton of recommendations from people just because I was being visibly who I am online and speaking to my experience yeah. and my art. And she reached out and said, I think you're the person for this. What do you think? I was like, uh, completely <laughs> floored because I really did think that I had to kind of think that those things were never going to be able to combine. There was not going to be a pathway for this. Um, uh, and I was just going to keep kind of shouting from the gates that like we have to change things in the industry. Um, so this opportunity to bring them together, to be able to talk about why it's important. And then for the art, I mean, I can't tell you enough, I'm so excited because none of this matters if the music isn't good, right? And then I heard the score <laughs> by Matt Bowler. Like we, we did a workshop last November, we did a workshop where we sang through like half of the, the piece. Um, and uh, the music is just 
devastating, funny, beautiful, just astoundingly good. And that was the moment where I'm like, oh, this is going to be a thing. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it totally took me by surprise and um, felt like a whole new kind of pathway for me. That's so exciting. So let's talk about what the conversation has been during this production around changing things. You are... You are working directly with Neil Labute as well, right? He advi- he he and Miriam worked together and he kind of like gave his blessing for her to do what she wanted to do with the libretto, which is pretty gracious, you know, really. Um uh but yeah, the process has been really hard in some ways. Um and really special in many, many ways. I mean, when we came to the workshop the first thing I kind of said to the cast when we kind of had an open first kind of discussion was that there's a ton of violently fat phobic language in the piece, you know, uh, where different characters are calling Helen, you know, a fat cow, a disgusting pig, stuff like that, where even when I'm listening to the scene, I have to figure out like coping mechanisms so that my nervous system doesn't get triggered and my voice doesn't lock up, you know, because, so what I said to the cast was like, this is not hyperbole. This is not some exaggerated performance piece. This is what fat people encounter in all kinds of micro and macro ways throughout their lives. And so, uh, I insist that we be really intentional about when we are rehearsing and when we're not. And I insist that we be really, really careful uh, with how we approach this because this is real life for me and real life for many of the people who will be seeing this. Um, Yeah, so, and, and, you know, also just coming to the first day of rehearsal, which we all call like the first day of school uh, because you're often in a new city with people you don't know, you know, starting a new piece. Having that first day of school for the first time in my career where I wasn't worried about what the artistic team was thinking about my body seeing me in the room was just like, Uh, I didn't even expect it. And I remember just walking in and just feeling like, holy shit, this is, this is a place where I get to just like be an artist and don't have to be held back by these other things that are stigmatizing me. Um, so, uh. Yeah, it's been wild and so special and hard and and wonderful. God, that's amazing. What a fabulous opportunity for you to take the agency to like whew, set up the rules beforehand and like mm. make it a teaching and learning moment and also make it a moment of like major victory for you with superb boundaries Thanks. that I'm sure also you know, we're not just for enormous respect for you, but also freeing for your other performers who are like, who probably feel the way that any of us would feel, you know, oh, navigating something. Yeah. With, right. with navigating something with hate speech. Absolutely. In it. Yep. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And like really giving them then the implicit permission to say, I am not this person. I can be this person in the scene. And Tracy. And I've got Tracy's hand and she's got mine. Yeah, like, totally. And really free you from whatever manacles yeah, uh, yeah. would otherwise keep you 
you know, um, anxious, anxious to tell that story. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I told them also that, you know, I'm, I was, and I'm still figuring out how to sing the piece because, um, I mean, in opera, opera, one of the biggest differences between opera and straight theater is that this, the larynx, the throat, we have to keep it, we have to find a low laryngeal position, meaning it has to be no tension, no pinch, no grab here. So what happens when you cry? What happens when your nervous system gets triggered? You get locked here. You get completely locked. So, yes. so we have a saying which is tears on the stage, dry in the house, which feels antithetical just from an acting standpoint of like, well, I should be allowed to f- communicate this however I can, even if that means digging into a really personal place, right? But with opera, you do that work beforehand, but in the performance, you cannot do that or you won't be able to sing. Um, right. So you have to figure out ways to, to be just as impactful emotionally without triggering your own shit, right? Um, so with this piece, is the most triggering piece possible for me. Um, so it's been an ongoing process for me to figure out how to, how to, how to navigate that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. I, um, I was having a lot of vocal issues for a very long time. I came to New York to do musical theater. I now do burlesque, which is closer to children's theater than anything else I've ever done. But, um, it's, a. (laughs) I, I, there's a chicken costume and everything. Oh my God. The whole thing. Um, but I, uh, one of the reasons why I backed away from musical theater and tried to figure out what else I could do is because I had so much like body mind stuff happening that I didn't know what voice was going to show up at an audition. Like I just didn't have enough control over it. And it wasn't because I didn't know about my muscles or like where, how all of this works. But the second anything would get in my head, uh, it was just, it was just a very bad um what's it called a uh, uh, feedback loop yes feedback mm. loop and self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time mm-hmm. um and yet i also had a very hard time trying to find any vocal coaches at the time who were willing to specifically dig into that with me right right and that's uh i am a, a voice teacher when i'm not performing and i'm so passionate about it because Uh, I think in both musical theater and opera, there's this master student dynamic where you enter a coaching or something and they're there to help you, but also the bar is here and they're not necessarily meeting you where you are. And, um, my position is that this is all of this work that we do in performance is, is somatic. It's similar. I think teaching should be similar to somatic therapy in that if you can't, if you don't have access to tuning into what you're actually feeling, how on earth can you sing? How on earth can you be Mm -hmm. grounded and in your body? Um, If you're cut off from your body because someone's telling you your body is wrong or they're just not tuning into who you are as a human. Um, uh, Yeah, I think a lot, I mean, we 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 do Alexander technique. There's things that we do right that are tuned into that. But when it comes to actually teaching teachers, um, I think there's not enough of that. You know, like oh, you're a human. Here, let's start there. Uh, what do you need as a singer and performer Definitely. to be successful, right? 
here's a here's a fun question that that we because again musical theater sometimes you are asked to do exercises to explore something where you're like oh no um (laughs) do you have do do you have something like that in opera where where you have been asked to do something even just as a for instance where you were like oh (laughs) i don't think that this is what i want to do to explore this character (laughs) or this vocal issue so Mm. many holy crap um i'm thinking about one of one of the ones i really hated the most which was um in my young artist program, we, when we were having acting classes, like in a young artist program, you have, you, you perform small roles. You usually have your own performances and then you have classes. You've got dance and acting and diction and lessons and all that stuff. And, um, uh, we are in our acting class. We were, we were preparing some kind of play for performance, which escapes me, but the, the director had us do a trust exercise with our colleagues Uh which involved Uh (laughs) two of your colleagues grabbing you under the shoulders and lifting you right um which oh no i i fundamentally (laughs) i have come to a place where i am fundamentally opposed to any theater trust thing that involves you giving your safety to one of your colleagues uh and there's so many of of untrained Untrained uh-huh. and possibly asshole colleagues. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, those two together. I'm projecting. I'm projecting. Combo. I'm projecting. <laughs> but it's fixed. Um, yeah. So yeah. any number of those things where I was feeling humiliated because my colleagues were being asked to, like, pick up and have some kind of feelings about my weight on their body. Uh, and then mm. that's supposedly supposed to make me trust them more and feeling unsafe and feeling like you can't say no in those, especially in those kind of apprentice situations. And, uh, mm-hmm. why, just why, you know, did this guy just, nice? why? Yeah. Couldn't think of something else to do. I think that's my, my thought. It's just, <laughs> there's that element of bullshit in some of this stuff. That's like, no, that's, this is not it. Mm-hmm. Mm. So how does this, um, since you, since you have the opportunity to redefine fat pig, right? Because um, uh, you do not have to comment on this, but I think there was a good amount of very valid criticism that Neil Abute, who I believe would be characterized as a small fat, mm. um, a small fat man, was really allowing his own lived experience to be projected onto someone who absolutely would not have shared that um, because of uh, because of sexism, because of sizeism, um, because of uh, ableism. So since you have this opportunity to really redefine fat pig and have it take hopefully a couple more steps in favor of Helen and telling, um, telling an even more empowering story. What do those changes look like in your original production? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I think so. So I think one of the major criticisms that continue to arise uh, about the play 
uh, is exactly what you said is that kind of projection as a man onto what he thinks of a fat woman's experience would be and etc. Et uh, and also just that he's he claims that that it's a misogynist piece and he's a misogynist. And uh, my point of view from the beginning has been that um, he presents misogyny uh, so that the audience has to deal with it, has to react with it. Uh, and uh, one mm -hmm. of the things that really drew me to the piece, especially in the new libretto, um, is that it... So, so spoiler alert, um, you know, towards the end, when uh, Tom uh, is... Is it's looking like Tom's gonna break up with Helen because he can't deal with the fat, the anti-fat bias from his colleagues and his ex-girlfriend. Um, uh, she says, you know, your love is so important to me. It's so healing um, for me to feel desired and protected and shielded by you that I would do anything to maintain it, including getting gastric bypass. And so. Oh, in right. the monologue, which in the opera is this devastating aria that is a cappella for most of it, which is unheard of in opera and not easy to stay in tune and to stay connected, right? Um, but she's saying over and over again, I would cut, I would starve, I would shrink, I would do it for you. I would cut, I would starve, I would shrink, I would do it for you, I would do it for you. And finally this like uh, lone cello comes in and joins her. And she says, I would do it if it meant that this would continue. And so to me, in my fat liberationist stance, that would never be the choice that I would make at this point in my life. Um, but the thing is that most of the time in our modern day and culture, if someone says, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get gastric bypass. I'm doing it for me. You know, I'm finally going to get that weight off and be the person I'm supposed to be. Right. The reaction you're going to get is good for you. That's great. Good for you. Right. That's the social norm. And in this piece, yeah. where Helen is the only likable character, she's funny, she's warm, she's compassionate. And when she makes this choice that is, it's so jarring in that moment, the audience is gonna be sitting there and saying, oh my God, no, no, don't do that. You don't need to do that. And to so me, radical. that is so fucking radical. That is so new. Mm. Uh, so yeah. I want <laughs> the audience to come and I want them to emotionally connect to this fat character in a way they never have and be upset at the cruelty she faces and then the choices she's forced into. Um, I think that 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 negates any criticism of the piece. I think it's, it's going to be really important. And I think it's going to open the gates for other pieces written by fat people for fat people. Yeah. Hell yeah. 
<laughs> so oh. good. Oh, yeah. goosebumps. Yeah, that's a very, very powerful moment. I think, I also think people are like ready for it. Like we've been, we've been priming the population with social media enough to just get a tiny bit of WD-40 <laughs> on those fucking hinges <laughs> yeah. to find real empathy and to, and to root for something that I bet so many people would never, ever have um, considered. I... Love that so much. Yay. Yeah, totally. We're so great. I'm so excited. That's so great. Yeah. That's so great. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about fat vanity. Um, yeah. We, Lillian and I, do take the opportunity to talk about fat politics at every possible juncture, but um, it it's not super common that we uh, talk to somebody who's who's really like just as vocal um so i think what you do is so resonant and important um i would love for i would i would just love for you to take us down a little bit of um uh to take us to school on it (laughs) yeah gladly uh yeah, so so to me, something that has been really important in my kind of liberation pathway has always been my aesthetic presentation uh, because I've always felt kind of alternating feelings of either being rendered invisible walking down the street, right, ignored as a fat person, uh, being one of two things, either completely sexless, where uh, I'm not looked at as someone desirable, I'm just not looked at, right? Um, Or over-sexualized. And so to me, I mean, I've always been kind of like a, just drawn to neon colors and sparkles and garish, gaudy, tacky things. And- um, Yes, garish. And it's always felt kind of like armor to me in a way where I want my aesthetic presentation to first make me feel the most me and then to secondly feel kind of like an armor where I don't really have to speak to you like my my aesthetic is speaking to you. Um, And so Fat Vanity kind of like uh, when I started to really think about this idea of how that has helped me, Um, uh, I think about it as a tool for us because, um, there's no one like us. There's no one like us who has been literally like we're forced into creativity and even just finding clothes, first of all, making Mm -hmm. clothes, Mm -hmm. creating something that feels like us. Right. Um, and then secondly, when you reach a liberation point, um, where you know how hot you are, you know how stylish you are, you know when you walk down the street that there's other unliberated fat people looking at you and going, holy shit, I can be cool. Like I can look, I can look like that. You know what I mean? Like that was an access point for me. All you need is one person to give you permission. Yes. And I first found it through, uh, like, remember Flickr? It was like a streaming photo platform. Yeah. In like 2000. Tied to like Yahoo or some shit. Yeah. Like 2008 or something. I was in grad school and I found this Flickr of fat babes 
who like one of them had like eyebrows that were tattooed in leopard print and like one uh, super fat woman that sounds had, like Jasmine Jay had like cupcakes on each shoulder tattooed and I was like I still was very much in the mindset of like I'll wait to buy clothes I like when I'm in the ideal size right so just having that brain moment of oh like I can be this hot right now whoa like it was a brain bender for me so fat vanity to me is a tool that fat people teach each other uh, and it is uh, a liberation pathway for feeling embodied understanding your own power um, and um, yeah just knowing you're hot and we know like I, I get on my soapbox about the difference between body positivity and fat liberation meaning that Bopo is more the individual healing, right? And fat liberation is systemic change, systemic work, right? But we have to, the system is made up of individuals. So every time we teach a fat person that they have power and value, uh, we're adding to our own strength as a movement. Um, so absolutely. Yeah, that fat vanity for me is where it's at. Fuck yes. I love that. I love God, that. That uh, is perfectly uh, My friend who's an incredible jazz singer, her name is Emily Braden, was posting earlier today. And she goes through various, like, different fun, um, punky hair colors and things like that. Those aren't my dogs, by the way. Those are <laughs> outside dogs. But, <laughs> Someone um, else is uh, 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 somebody on her on her recent Instagram was like, oh, my God, you're always so fashionable. And she just replied, yeah, imagine how amazing I would look if I could just buy clothes wherever. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> and I love it. So I love that. Um, I know that we need to wrap up. Was there any other bizarre little, uh, like, snafu that, that had happened to you or, like, a backstage foible bumble kind of situation? Hmm. Um, um, uh, oh, uh, I'm having this vision of, um, a production of Ariadne Auf Naxos that I sang, which is my, one of my favorite operas ever. It's a Strauss opera. Um, it's Gorge and it's, it's one of those Full operas. Of it's an opera within an opera, right? So the first act is like getting ready. And then the second act is the opera. So Ariadne is nice. the title role and that's what, that's my voice type. That's what I sang. And she is just a dismissive diva and sings glorious things and is funny. Like when anytime anyone upstages her, she's very upset. Um, and anyways, so in the first act, I had this gorgeous, it was set in the 1920s. I had this gorgeous, gorgeous pink gown um, with a gold overlay and it was designed for a quick change. Um, and so the whole back was Velcro. <laughs> and on opening night, I had like a big, like, you know, dramatic impulse that involves both of my arms and some kind of suboptimal angle that popped the entirety of my costume open in the back. Um, and I could feel the breeze. I heard the Velcro. I'm like, oh, and I'm like singing. And the whole cast is kind of around me. So I did kind of like a little bit of a grapevine towards one of my other cast members. And she did kind of like a shoulder, like kind of, fake like getting me back velcroed back together so my ass wasn't out um yeah it was good that, that breeze when that breeze hits you 
you know you're in trouble. Oh. <laughs> you you know you're gonna hit those notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, Tracy, you are majestic, absolutely majestic, listeners. Um. She is premiering as the star in Fat Pig, the Chamber Opera at Victory Hall Opera in Charlottesville. You open at the end of January? January 22nd and 27th, and there's going to be a film, too, so there's lots of ways to access if you can't be in Charlottesville. Oh, my God, there's going to be... Yes. Okay, great. Um, Beautiful. We are so excited for you. Hell the hell yes. Oh my god, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for talking for to us. us today. Thank oh, you both. A what, a, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're lovely. Thespians, thank you as always for tuning in. And until next time, uh, look out for falling printers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> that's 2022. That's, that's oh, all it's going to be. Is laser printers flying at our heads. <laughs>